This is Issues and Interviews. And now, here's Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Welcome back to Issues and Interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, do me a favor real quick. Subscribe to this podcast. I know you're listening now, but you know what's going to really help us climb the charts, get our message out to more people? If you click that subscribe button, it takes about a half a second. It's free, but it'll go a long way to help us get this podcast far and wide all over the fruited plain of this great country. Tell your friends about it. Share it on your social media. And issues and interviews will become a household name. And we have a blockbuster show today. I have a great guest coming up. He's going to talk about yet another way you're being fleeced by the taxpayer, working class people being taxed to give the most glamorous, wealthiest industry in the country your tax dollars. We're going to talk about it with a policy expert from the Empire Center a little bit later on. And we're also going to talk about Seinfeld. You remember Seinfeld? Seinfeld has a scene that covers every aspect of life, even politics, even the pandemic. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. And I'll explain a little bit about what I mean. And then we're going to wrap up talking about 2024, talk about the candidates who are in the race. There's a new candidate, interesting candidate. I didn't know about him. I had to Google him, but I like what I've heard. A new Republican candidate in the race. You might not have heard about him, but stick around on this podcast after you subscribe and you'll know all about this new Republican candidate, up and comer, running for the presidency. But let's get back to that Seinfeld quote. Do you remember Seinfeld? Now I'm dating myself. This might be 30 years ago. But George and Jerry are sitting around the coffee shop as they did every episode. And Jerry says to George, you know, if every instinct you've ever had is wrong, then the opposite must be right. Well, guess what? The federal government, the elites, the medical community, huge international corporations, everything they did with regard to the pandemic, was wrong. And everything normal people like you and me, regular people just following their gut, believed was right. And I hate to use Seinfeld, which is a comedy, to talk about a serious issue, but once again this week, two humongous stories came out that shows that the elites, their instincts, and the instincts is charitable. I don't think it was their instincts. I think it was nefarious intent. It was wrong. It came out this week, three years too late, the Lancet Medical Journal, kind of a liberal medical journal, finally recognized what I've known since I was a kid. Natural immunity works. Natural immunity, in many cases, is better than artificial immunity or vaccines. They finally, three years later, after people lost their jobs, I believe after some people lost their lives due to vaccine mandates, came out and said, hey, you know what? Even though we've known this for hundreds of years, maybe even centuries, that natural immunity helps stave off the next, the next case, during the pandemic, they got away from that and told us we were crazy and, and banned us from even saying it and looked upon us like we were conspiracy theorists. But now the medical elites had to come out and say, natural immunity matters. And I remember two years ago, three years ago, when the vaccine mandates were starting up and saying, why doesn't natural immunity count for anything? Why, if you got the shot, but not natural immunity, do you have access to the world at large? Can you perform your job? That made me skeptical. That made me realize something wasn't right here. We weren't being told the truth. Also this week, along the same vein, the U.S. Energy Department came out and said what we all knew. They were wrong. Their instinct was wrong. 
when they said, no, 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 coronavirus, that, that didn't come out of a lab in China. No, you're crazy for thinking that. You can't even talk about that. That's ridiculous. Well, guess what? U.S. Energy Department came out and said what the average person on the street knew, what Donald Trump knew three years ago, coronavirus and all the destruction it wrought and continues to, to wreak all over our country and all over our world came out of a lab in Wuhan, China. They finally admitted that. A little bit too late. Too little too late to be honest with you, but I'm glad they're finally admitting it. But that seems to be a tactic. Do whatever you want. Destroy lives. Destroy the credibility of just about every important institution in our country. And then years later, come clean and say, oh, sorry, by the way, we were wrong. Reminds me uh, on a huge scale what the newspapers do on a small scale. They make a mistake in a big headline, in a big story on the front page, and then they correct it three days later with a tiny sentence on page 28A. And that's even if anybody's still reading a newspaper. Also, in the past couple of days, it came out, what we all knew in New York, just about every instinct that Andrew Cuomo had as governor with regard to the pandemic and everything else for that matter, was wrong. Lockdowns were wrong. Masks were wrong. Not only in schools, but at large. We know because of the carnage that putting infected people in nursing homes was a bad decision and led to the death of maybe 15,000 people. And it reminds me of two great quotes. I'm a lover of history, as I think you know by now if you've been listening to issues and interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler, and I love quotes that come from history. And here's a great quote from General Patton, right? Not known for nuance necessarily. He's known for winning battles, known as, quote, a genius for war. There's a book, Patton, Genius for War. But he said something so profound, I always quote every chance I get. General Patton said, if everyone is thinking the same, someone isn't thinking. Think about that quote. If everyone is thinking the same, someone isn't thinking. That should be a lesson. If everybody's going in one direction without any contemplation, without any caution, that should raise your consciousness to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have we thought about it this way? Have we thought about it the other way? Obviously, the elites didn't do that during this pandemic, but we have to do that to put the brakes on bad ideas. And here's another perfect quote, great quote, kind of sums up President Reagan and the Reagan administration, and perfect for this situation. The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <sighs> Truer words were never spoken. Truer words have never been spoken. And we need to be conscious of that. When the government says, oh, we're going to come fix things. We're going to make things better for you. Are they really? Or are they going to make things worse? So often they make things worse. I mean, look at the destruction in education from the lockdowns, the lockdowns of schools and the masks on schools, the devastation on education. We don't even know how to calculate it yet. We haven't even seen all of it. We've only seen the tip of the iceberg, but we're going to see more than we're seeing now. We see suicides are up. Anxiety is up. Kids who had speech problems or still have speech problems or speech problems gotten worse because they were learning how to speak and read with a mask on. They couldn't see their teacher's face, isolation, drug addiction, all these things, mental illness, all these things were done by a government, federal, state, local, in many cases. They came in and said, hold on, I'm from the government and I'm going to help you. Be terrified of that. Okay, obviously, there's some situations where you need the government to step in. FEMA, right? They waited three weeks out in Ohio to wait for FEMA to come in. And I'm not saying reject government at all times, but I'm saying be skeptical. Be skeptical when the government says they're going to come in and fix things, especially if they have a, a solution they claim is going to just fix everything. And, you know, if you make a mistake at your job, if you do something and break a expensive piece of equipment or get the company fired or do something, you know, that happens every day. I mean, get the company sued. 
you're going to get fired. People get fired all the time. President Trump got famous firing people from his TV show, but people lose their jobs all the time for a variety of reasons. Let me ask you a question. All of these medical geniuses, Dr. Fauci and the rest, elected officials, they all had big jobs. In the case of Cuomo and Fauci, they profited financially from the pandemic. Media people, they were all wrong. Who got fired? Who's paid a price at the decision-making level for mistakes made during COVID? I can't think of any. I can't think of any major player who was like, you know what? You failed. Get out of here. We need to find somebody else to fix it. The elites never get fired. And I started thinking about this. I heard a speaker talk one time saying, who got fired after 9-11? Obviously, 9-11 happened. 3,000 Americans died because mistakes were made. Dots weren't connected. Policies were in place that didn't protect us. and There was catastrophe, even after the fact EPA came in and said, oh, no, 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 there's fine to breathe down there. Clearly it wasn't. People are still dying to this day who are on the pile and near ground zero. Who paid the price? Who got fired there? Nobody. The elites never get fired, and it's an enormous, enormous problem. And I don't think, as I stated before, I don't think it was really the bad instincts of the powers that be in uh, high positions and corporations, in government, in the healthcare hierarchy. I think it was nefarious. I mean, if you think about the, and the media, and you think about the media, how if you said certain things like natural immunity works, masks don't work, the vaccine has side effects, you got blocked. Humongous multinational corporations blocked you from communicating with your fellow Americans. And you were right, and they were wrong. Part of that is money. A huge part of it is money. Turn on your TV. You see food, automobiles and pharmaceuticals. That's basically what you see advertised and and sneakers, I guess, on TV. So the media, the corporations that own media companies, the corporations that advertise on social media companies, they never wanted to poke the bear of the pharmaceutical industry for financial reasons. They're paying the bills in large part. And if you lose pharmaceutical advertising, the media takes it. That's a big part of it. It's not the whole thing, but it's a big part of it. And I think the lesson here is, I've been telling this to my children, my children are 16, 15, 14, and 12, almost 12, you have to educate yourself. You have to be a critical thinker to the point where you can trust your gut. I said to my children yesterday, I said, me and mommy were right about all these things that we've been talking about now on this podcast, about the masks, about the vaccine, about lockdowns, about the educational impact. We were right because me and mommy, as I told my children, we're smart people. We do our homework, we're critical thinkers, we question the authorities, and our gut was good on this. The biggest thing since we've been parents, the biggest thing by far to come along is the pandemic and how to handle it the last three years. And I said, you have to become a critical thinker. And you know why I started thinking like that? It's kind of ironic because it gets back to communism and leftism that we're thinking about today. I grew up going to school and we heard about McCarthyism And we heard how terrible Senator McCarthy of Wisconsin was because he was saying they were communists in in the U.S. government that were undermining us. My parents believed that he was right. They believed that the Rosenbergs committed treason with regard to the atomic bomb. They believed that Alger Hiss was a Soviet agent. And that was kind of like today, considered a conspiracy theory. The history books really didn't teach that. They maligned anyone like McCarthy who called that out and whatever. You can question McCarthy's tactics. But he was right. There were communists in high levels of government. The Rosenbergs were guilty. They sold us out. We still live under the threat of atomic proliferation. And it's a less safe world because what the Rosenbergs did to advance the cause of communism. And Alger Hiss, Alger Hiss was right there at Roosevelt's side when the Soviets took over half of Europe. 
He was a communist. He was. He was. So I grew up kind of listening to my social studies teacher, trying to be respectful, but questioning it, questioning it, doing a little bit of my own homework. And that has paid off with regard to dealing with the pandemic as a parent here in the 21st century. And it's kind of funny. I'm the one telling my kids, don't trust the government, question authority. I sound like the old hippie. I, that's what the hippies were all about. The hippies were, were about questioning authority. But now those hippies are all 70 years old. They are the authority. They're in charge. And they're the ones saying, follow in lockstep. Follow what the government tells you. Do what you're told. Don't question authority. Don't think for yourself. Kind of an incredible turnabout in a generation. But honestly, most of those hippies... Most of those people saying, think for yourself, question authority, they were useful idiots. They were useful idiots for the hard left because they were trying to undermine the strong society that we had in the 50s and early 60s and trying to help disintegrate society. And now that they're full-grown adults and they're in charge of everything, right? You have 70-something-year-olds leading the Senate, Mitch McConnell and Schumer. Biden's 80. Up until a month ago, you had Pelosi, that whole generation, they're all in charge. They're all for big government. They're all for telling you what to do. They were all wrong on this pandemic, Republicans and Democrats. They were all wrong about that. So I guess I'm a hippie. I mean, I'm a bald guy. I'm a bald Marine, so I'm far from a hippie. But that notion of questioning authority, questioning the government, thinking for yourself, whew, that is powerful stuff and very important in our republic. And we're going to get to our guest in just a moment. We are joined on the Issues and Interviews Hotline by Empire Center fellow, Ken Gerardin. Thanks for joining us today, Ken. How are you? Great to be here. Ken, you wrote a great article, very thoughtful, in-depth article about how the working class taxpayer in New York State is being fleeced so that Hollywood filmmakers can get richer. The poor subsidizing the rich. Tell us about your great article and what you uncovered. New York, for the past 15 years, has been subsidizing film and television shows extremely generously. Essentially, we call it a tax credit, but it amounts to a cash subsidy where movies and TV shows get shot in New York. And depending on the project, New Yorkers pick up 25% or more of the cost of filming in New York. And this is a really generous subsidy, unlike, unlike pretty much anything else we see in New York. New York does a lot to – New York is almost the, the corporate welfare capital of the country. And we don't see any – even by New York standards, this is pretty crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's incredible is something you touched upon right there in your opening answer to that question is – it's not just, oh, we're going to reduce taxes, you know, supply side Reaganomics, so to speak, reduce taxes on producers and you get more of it. In many, many cases, we're cutting them a check because the credit actually eliminates their tax liabilities to the state. So we're actually cutting them a check. Is that accurate? Oh, it completely blows their tax liability out of the water. It's almost inappropriate to compare the two of them together. If you figure, you know, we'll say back of the envelope that some of these producers would be paying essentially you know, a 6% personal income tax rate and we're coming in with 25% or more, then this is hands down just a big cash subsidy. And that's the only way it should be looked at. The crazy part about it is that Governor Hochul has proposed hiking the subsidy, not only expanding it from a pool of $420 million per year to $700 million, but also increasing the share of production that we're willing to reimburse up to 
and making things like payments to directors and composers and writers also eligible for these subsidies. So she's proposed this, this massive expansion of, of a credit that really is indefensible because folks say, well, we need this because we need this industry in New York. And we're constantly told to pretend that if it weren't for subsidies from Albany, there wouldn't be a film and television sector in New York. That Saturday Night Live would be would be filming from you know, Louisiana or, or Georgia were it not for the fact that we were paying them to stay here. And that's really just not borne out by the data. We see a really a marginal benefit in terms of employment in New York. And if you look at these subsidies in recent years, depending on how you crunch the numbers, we're paying anywhere from $30,000 per job to $90,000 per job that is created by this program. And the thing we're also told not to do or we're encouraged not to do is to compare it to anything else. Pick pretty much any sector in New York. If I started giving them $420 million to subsidize a third of their payroll, you'd get more jobs in that sector. That's, that's true of almost any part. If we, you know, if, if we agreed to pick up a third of the cost of making pizza, we'd get more pizzerias and more pizza jobs. And that sounds, that sounds told, delicious, Ken. That sounds great. It, it, it would be much more fulfilling than being force-fed another season of Blue Bloods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, and I like Blue Buzz. Blue Buzz is kind of one of the more, you know, I don't want to say conservative, but it's not it's not flamingly liberal. It's not anti-cop and doesn't doesn't insult your values. But that's kind of an issue, like also, Do don't you, like you it think? Twenty million dollars per season, though. Do you like it? $20 no, no. Dollars per season. And I mean, to be honest. You, I don't even watch it anymore, but my mom, my 81 year old mother watches it. <laughs> That's her demo. But no, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to be taxed to pay for Tom Selleck to be the police chief on TV. No, absolutely not. And that's such a great point. And I want to, I want to go back and unpack some of those numbers. So for, so for 10 or 15 years, we were giving 420 million, almost a half a billion dollars every year to film filmmakers to come to New York. Law and Order is a great example too. Law and Order has been here since I was in high school and they're not going anywhere. And We've been giving them 420 million. It's supposed to go to, uh, or has been going to below the line costs, meaning the production costs, more, the more blue collar aspects. And now you're saying this budget is increasing it, almost doubling it from 400 million to 700 million. And now it's not going to be the guy holding the microphone who's making a you know middle class living. Hopefully, that's going to just be subsidized. Now Steven Spielberg, if he comes to get a movie here, some of his salary is going to be is going to be covered if this passes by the end of March. Am I correct? That's right. And a big chunk of the folks who are going to be getting these subsidies would be filming in New York regardless. We have, you know, we're constantly being told about how great the film sector is in New York and how desirable it is to come film here. But the reality is, if it really is such a desirable place, why would we have to pay people to come here? And people will point to some of the other things that other states are doing where, you know, for instance, New Jersey has hiked their subsidies. Georgia and California are subsidizing folks pretty heavily. Louisiana was the one that got us into this mess in the first place. They were the original state that started doing the subsidies and started this, this arms race. But if New York were to get out of the subsidy business, we would lend credence to a lot of other state lawmakers and a lot of other state capitals who want to also get out of the business. And this isn't just a fiscally conservative thing. One of the you know, more, you know, most authoritative, some of the most authoritative voices on this have been coming from you know, progressives on the left who correctly identify this as indefensible corporate welfare. So you're seeing a contingent of progressives in the Connecticut state legislature 
infrastructure who want this to go away. They've got other priorities for the 100 million or so that Connecticut blows on their film program. So I think if New York unilaterally got out, it would help push a lot of other states to the tipping point to say, look, if New York is getting out of this, we can get out of this too. Yeah, and you make such a good point. So many of the shows will be here. It's not going to be live from Shreveport Saturday night. It's never going to happen. <laughs> okay? I mean, you know, I'm, they're driving all New Yorkers down south eventually with the terrible policies out of Albany, but I don't think I don't think they're going to drive Saturday Night Live out anytime soon, although nobody watches it. So I don't know. Maybe the subsidy makes it possible to even have that show because I don't think anybody watches that show anymore. And you touched on this also, and it's something that doesn't get enough attention. There's an opportunity cost here. That $420 million in tax relief could have been for the last 15 years allocated to teachers, firemen, or tax relief to some other sector or across the board. And nobody looks at the opportunity cost of, well, we're giving this glamorous industry um, this, this humongous tax break, actually paying them to work here. What if we gave it to a different industry? What if we gave it to some other aspect of life in New York? What would happen? It is a glamorous industry, and I'm glad you mentioned that because for folks who encourage us to follow the science in all other things, they are really asking us to kind of close our eyes and just think with our hearts on this. And and here's what they think about. It's nice for elected officials fundraising. We saw that when emails from Sony Corporation were hacked and posted online, that they were raising money for Governor Cuomo specifically because he was a defender of the film credit. It's really nice for organized labor because these tend to be unionized jobs down in the city. And frankly, politicians get starstruck. You'll see pictures of them on social media with some B-rate star who comes to their community to shoot a film for half a day. And they they posted on Twitter. I gave some examples of that in my article on empirecenter.org. People can check out. But it's they're they're asking us to consider all these other things and not look at the the ironclad data that's in front of us. Yeah, good point. In in my area, Dutchess County, our county executive Mark Molinaro, who's now a congressman, he actually got in a film. He had a small little appearance in a film that was was subsidized. So that that goes beyond putting it on Twitter. And that's a that's a big part of the problem. You have all these state lawmakers who get excited about a film production coming to town. And you know, forget the fact that some of these folks represent areas that have unique settings that folks would want to film in anyways. And I'd hold up the city of Troy as an example. You're not going to go find those facades of brownstones and, and whatnot in many other parts of the country. But you hear people saying, hey, we need to subsidize this because we've, we can have a thriving film industry in Cooperstown. Well, guess what? For $420 million a year, I can grow oranges in the North Country. <laughs> Very good point. Hey, Ken, we got to wrap up here. I'm glad you mentioned the website. Mention the website for the Empire Center again. And then just one final question as we head out. EmpireCenter.org. Please check us out. Ken Gerardin. When I used to debate this on the floor of the assembly with the Ways and Means chairperson in the middle of the night on March 30th, usually, I would say, hey, how many of these jobs offer health care? How many of these jobs are the full-time year-round job of the person getting it? Because you see a lot of book cooking among the proponents of this. Basically, the film industry does a study and, and tells us that subsidizing the film industry is really great. You talk about that in your article. Well, typically, we hear about 150,000 jobs or you know, 170,000 jobs. But in reality, these are what you know, should correctly be described as, as gigs. 
And if you look closer at how many actual full-time equivalent jobs are specifically subsidized by the program, it's a much, much smaller number, closer to 10,000 per year. And we'll hear all these generous assumptions about, well, for every job we subsidize, we create eight or nine other jobs in New York, which is, I mean, which is absolutely bonkers in terms of the, the multiplier effect that folks claim. I shouldn't say eight or nine jobs. We'll, we'll say many, many, many more jobs. I don't want to put anybody on the spot here. Right. Many, many other, other jobs. But again, it comes back to what we were discussing before with the opportunity cost. If I cut business taxes by $420 million, I'm going to create a lot of, you know, a lot more jobs than the, you know, the $30,000 per job job that I'm getting or the $60,000 per job job that I'm getting. Yeah, great stuff there. Ken Girardin at the Empire Center. Fellow, stay on top of this stuff. Visit that website. There's so much interesting stuff there. There's what you can get in the mass media, which just touches the surface. But the nitty gritty of how you're being fleeced by your government is always on EmpireCenter.org. Fellows like Ken are doing a great job. Thanks so much for joining us, Ken. Thanks for having me, Gary. All right. Take care, buddy. All right. I learned a lot there. I was on top of that issue for my during my time in the assembly, but I learned a lot by reading that article and talking to Ken just there. Corporate welfare, it's always a loser. States competing with corporate welfare is a race to the bottom. But let's talk about a race that excites me, that's interesting, that is a must win for what I'm going to call the good guys, for the Republican side. This presidential campaign, this presidential election is heating up. It's not until 2024. But they've already announced that the first debate is going to be in Wisconsin this summer. You know, Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, making a comeback, trying to win another four-year term. He's in the race. Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the UN, she's in the race. She's making some noise. Don Lemon helped her out there, make some noise. Former South Carolina governor also, Nikki Haley was. And there's a third guy that I had to Google him. I didn't know who he was, but I like him. I like him, and I'm, I had a tough time saying Ken Gerardin's name. So I'm going to have a tough time with this guy's name, but, and I apologize if I get it wrong. And I tried to, I tried to listen to other people say it. This gentleman's name is younger than me, way younger than me. He's 38 years old. I'm 47. He's 38. He's a young man born in 1985. Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy. President Vivek Ramaswamy. How does that sound? Hey, I don't know that much about this guy, but I'm open to hear what he's got to say. He's a self-made guy. Parents came here from India. He's born in Ohio, made a fortune in finance and in other industries. And he is an independent. He is a guy who's willing to take on the elites that we were talking about in the first segment, the elites that messed everything up for the last three years. He wrote a book called Woke Inc. Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Vivek Ramaswamy. I don't know if a 38-year-old who's never been in politics is going to come in and, and win the presidential election, but I think it's great to have him on the stage. I hope he qualifies to get into the debates. We learned this week that there's going to be qualifications, as there usually are, based on fundraising, based on polling, and a loyalty oath. You have to pledge that you'll support the candidate of the Republican Party in the general election if you don't win the primary. So that's interesting. But I want to hear what this guy has to say. A very different, a very different path to the presidency. I'm done with governors who've been in politics for 50 years or senators who've been in politics for 50 years being president. Okay, very difficult for them to drain the swamp, and we know it needs to be drained at every level. I have people in local towns talking to me about draining the swamp in their town, and this newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy, you might have seen him on Hannity, and he's, he's kind of made the rounds. I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be interesting. High quality candidate, interesting person, going to help Republicans 
appeal to a younger demographic. Somebody born in the 80s, I don't think anybody born in the 70s has ever been president. So it'll be interesting to have somebody born in the 80s as president. So we're going to keep an eye on this whole presidential race. Vivek Ramaswamy, I like saying it. I'm getting better at saying it. And he wrote Woke Inc. I'm going to try to get him on this show. All right, that's going to, I'm going to, that's going to be my goal for the next couple of weeks. Get my man Vivek Ramaswamy on this show. And we have to wrap up this show. Unfortunately, all good things must come to an end. But definitely tweet this show out. Share it on your social media. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Go right on whatever platform you're using and click that subscribe button. That's going to help us a lot. And definitely join us next week for issues and interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. We'll see you next time. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.